This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu on Books podcast. This is our new podcast where we get to speak to some of the authors of some of the new and brightest books uh, that are out there for us to read. And with me is Mohammad Zishan. Uh, he's just uh, uh, brought out Flying Blind. It's a look at India's foreign policy and it's called India's Quest for Global Leadership. Uh, Zishan is also the editor of, of the Freedom Gazette, and he's a foreign policy analyst and a columnist in, in many papers and publications. I should add over here that he is an extremely young author. He's not yet even 30. Uh, and he has this book ab- out about not just India's foreign policy, but India's foreign policy history, taking us back uh, through the decades with an understanding of uh, where India should lead or what kind of a world India should build uh, and looking at some of the other global powers as well. So Zishan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, I, I, I want to start by actually referring not to your book straight away, but to an article I think you wrote where you said many friends of yours internationally will often ask the question, when India has a quest for global leadership, we can come to the question of how it is going to attain this global leadership. But the bigger question is often why. It is This is a country that is beset with its own problems. Um, and uh, it, it it could be argued that global leadership should perhaps come once those problems have been resolved. You clearly don't agree. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't actually agree with this. And I started my book with these very words uh, because, you know, to me, it seems like a lot of the solutions to India's problems are global in nature. Uh, and uh, India's growth story being one of, uh, you know, globalization, uh, one of uh, external immigration, of ties to the outside world, uh, economic, cultural, even political ties, as I argue in my book. Uh, I think that it's important for India in the interest of its own developmental aspirations that the Indian government makes foreign policy influence uh, a priority for itself. Um, and there are several reasons uh, for, for why I think this way. Uh, as I write my book, you know, trade, of course, is one. The fact that uh, the Indian passport does not rank very highly on the Henley Passport Index is another. You know, the fact that our fishermen and farmers uh, are often dependent on what goes on uh, in the immediate neighborhood. And, you know, the relationship that we have with countries like Sri Lanka and others uh, is another. Uh, you know, national security, of course, on the border with China, the need for allies uh, to fight against terrorist threats that emanate from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, as well as the uh, threat that emanates now from China. All of these, I think, are, are very strong reasons for why I, I believe India should uh, uh, think of this as a part of its developmental aspirations. Much of what you uh, write about in the book is, uh, uh, you know, is, is your understanding of where India has, um, has, has perhaps not performed as it should. Um, and I do want to discuss those. But if I was to ask you straight off, what do you think are the three biggest uh, 
drawbacks, if you like, because you you speak about the idea that India has to, you know, come out of the old uh, way of thinking. It has to throw off. Uh, you call them dogmas as well. I know that that's something external affairs minister, as Jay Shankar has said as well. What are some of these dogmas or things that are holding back India's foreign policy, according to you, if you were to name the top three? I think the first thing that we need to look at is being consistent in, um, you know, the pursuit of a set of priorities or objectives. I think, you know, in my book, I talk about fence-sitting, uh, which is in some sense, um, uh, you know, a, a problem that emanates from the fact that India is unable to make its mind up, uh, particularly on sensitive political international issues. Uh, sometimes that might matter more to other countries than to ourselves. But the fact that we are not making ourselves relevant in resolving those issues or disputes or whatever they are, uh, means that we end up uh, with with weaker influence than we should command for a country as as large and consequential uh, as we are. So I think for me, one of the main reasons that India tends to do fence sitting is that we do not have a clear idea of what the basic tenets of Indian foreign policy should be. Uh, and I sometimes talk about how you know Democrats and Republicans in the U.S., for instance, disagree on on several things, even on foreign policy issues. But by and large, it's accepted, at least in domestic policy rhetoric, that promoting democracy or standing up for democratic movements around the world uh, is is an American national interest. In India, it's not clear if we've decided uh, you know, on, these, on this question, even though we do make statements about democracy in Myanmar, uh, make large donations to the UN Democracy Fund and so on. We have not really cl- you know, clearly articulated whether this is something that is is in our foreign policy interest. So for me, I think that resolving these basic tenets uh, is is probably, you know, the top two priorities, I would say, out of the three that I want to talk about. Uh, the third priority for me, I think, is trying to find a way to actually expand the size of the Indian Foreign Service. I don't think this is controversial at all. Uh, you'd hardly ever find a retired or serving ambassador who talks about how adequately staffed the Indian Foreign Service is. Uh, they no, None of them believe that. Uh, everybody always talks about how understaffed the Indian Foreign Service is. And for a country as large as India, with the kind of talent pool that we've got, that, honestly speaking, is quite baffling. And, and to be honest, it's, it's one that can be solved easily. All right. Um, and I, I completely agree on the third point. Uh, we should certainly not, with a country of 1.3 billion, be worrying about how to um, uh, you know, fill some of these very important positions. Um, Zishan, I want to stop you on on your first point, where you spoke about fence sitting. And of course, the book is uh, the chapter is named The Great Indian Rope Walk, uh, about how India has really been able to walk a very, very tight rope and ensure that it, you know, either through the non-aligned movement and its policies then or through this concept of strategic autonomy, really not fallen off its balance. Um, and you just said that India at some point is going to have to make choices, yeah. uh, take yeah. a stand on, on issues. Yet later in your book, uh, you speak about India's um, uh, moves in the Maldives in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the wisdom of a policy that actually just let certain, uh, uh, you know, certain events play themselves out. Do you think over there there's a certain contradiction? 
No, I don't think so. I think it's more of a nuance. And, you know, obviously, we've got to make a judgment uh, on a case by case basis. But what really disturbed me about the Maldives, I mean, for me, the thumb rule is that where there is, uh, you know, a clear case of uh, public opinion in that country pushing in a certain direction, uh, India should try to do what the public opinion in that country wants uh, out of India. And for me, in my opinion, you know, the fact that uh, uh, Mohammed Nasheed, the president at the time, was democratically elected and he was overthrown really in a military coup that had no basis uh, in public opinion in that country. And then thereafter, after being deposed, uh, you know, the deposed president had actually publicly called to India uh, to, to help him. Uh, but uh, India decided to sit back uh, and be, you know, there was there was a certain sense on on the on the Indian establishment's part that you know we should be trying to do something, but at the same time we did nothing because we had one eye on China, and I think there was a a, a certain dilemma about whether uh, uh, you know the Chinese would uh, would take uh, op- uh, you know advantage of uh, uh, India's support for democratic activists there. So I think in that kind of a scenario where public opinion clearly is is moving in a certain direction, for me, it's very important that India stays alert to what that public opinion is and then proactively acts in defending it. And most of the time in South Asia, as I write in, in my book, there is a general uh, you know, uh, ambition and aspiration among South Asian people uh, for the strengthening of democracy in their respective countries. Uh, and I think India India needs to be quite clear about that. We've seen the contradictions to that as well in uh, the region and more recently in India, where on the one hand, as you said, India often makes these statements, whether it was in the democracy uh, movement in the Maldives or it has been the rights of Tamils in Sri Lanka, where we've seen Indian leaders go to Sri Lanka and make comments uh, or the Nepal constitution and the way that played out. And yet when comments are made uh, about uh, any events inside India, like the farmers' protests and those comments we saw from celebrities like the singer Rihanna, the Ministry of External Affairs actually put out quite a stern statement. Uh, What is your sense when you say India's quest for global leadership? Which way should India go on issues like this? No, I think this was extremely unfortunate that the foreign ministry put out a statement of this kind. Uh, I think that, you know, an emerging power, a self-confident emerging power, and, and particularly one that wants to tout its democratic credentials on the world stage as India does, uh, we've got to be a lot more open to external comments. I, first of all, I don't see how, as some people say, you know, these things constitute an infringement or a threat to Indian sovereignty. I mean, I personally have got absolute confidence in the Indian army to, you know, to be able to uphold India's sovereignty and the Indian government's sovereignty. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the people who made these statements also have the same confidence. So I don't, I don't see the logic behind uh, that statement. But at the same time, on the other hand, I think that if you look at some, you know, academics in America, for instance, and the way that they talk about, uh, they talk about how American democracy in some sense helped build American hegemony on the world stage. Uh, and what they argue is, quite rightly in my view, is that America, American hegemony or American leadership became somewhat more palatable uh, to the rest of the world, as opposed to, say, Chinese leadership as it's coming up now, because the rest of the world felt confident that it was able to have a voice within American democracy or that American democracy, in some sense, 
uh, you know, gave them space and protection to voice their opinions on what goes on in America and even to shape the conversation on policy issues within America. So there was a certain stakeholder sentiment or feeling that some American academics point out, which I think is quite true and is integral to American soft power even today. And I think that until recently, it was also integral to Indian soft power. A lot of people abroad often talk about Indian democracy uh, and, and favorably compare it to China by saying that, look, Indians, you guys are very open about yourselves. You're very self-confident. You're willing to talk about your weaknesses. You're willing to listen to us when we complain about your weaknesses. And that, I think, is very important to the credentials of an emerging power, uh, uh, you know, an emerging democratic power like like India. Okay. Um, I want to talk about one of the things you say in the book, and you say it more than once, which is that the Citizenship Amendment Act was one of the most controversial moves by any government when it, when it comes to its impact on foreign policy. Yeah. Explain that to me. So in my book, the, the you know, the immediate uh, impact that I saw out of the CAA was on our ties with Afghanistan and Bangladesh uh, in particular. Pakistan obviously is, is a different case. You know, there are already hostilities running. But Afghanistan and Bangladesh had become important partners, even in countering Pakistan itself. Uh, and in some ways, you know, they, the secular uh, politicians or secular leaning politicians in, in Bangladesh uh, as well as a large part of the Afghan civilian leadership has started had started looking to uh, you know leadership from India because they believe that India had in some sense dehyphenated them from Pakistan and in some sense made common cause with them against Islamist nationalism uh, and Islamist threats both within Bangladesh as well as within Afghanistan as well as uh, you know against threats emanating out of Pakistan as well. Uh, so I think in some sense, we hyphenated these countries with Pakistan and, you know, thereby shot ourselves in the foot. And uh, in the immediate aftermath, I think one of the things that I quote is uh, uh, an interview that you had yourself with uh, uh, the former Afghan president, Hamid Karzai, where he was quite visibly upset uh, in, in his response to uh, the law. And, you know, he talked about how all Afghans are persecuted. It's not like you know, in some sense, Afghans are uh, involved together in the, you know, mass genocide of non-Muslims. And I think that they felt betrayed that they were trying to fight against the same forces that India was fighting against. But at the same time, we, through the CAA, decided to club them with, with, uh, uh, you know, with, uh, with those, uh, with those very forces. So that was the immediate fallout that, that I saw. Apart from that, of course, you know, there was a, a broader fallout uh, in the EU and in the US and elsewhere, uh, the diaspora, the Indian diaspora was out protesting on the streets in front of Indian consulates. I think it polarized the Indian diaspora tremendously as well, uh, uh, which uh, w- which was not seen before that uh, before that uh, incident. Uh, and overall, I think it it hurt India's soft power and foreign policy quite badly. Right. In fact, you you mentioned that interview uh, with Hamid Karzai. Both Hamid Karzai and Sheikh Hasina uh, have actually had to live in India when they were uh, fleeing from situations back home. And uh, Mr. Karzai's uh, suggestion was that, you know, it seems strange that I would not uh, be welcome in quite the same way as others from my country if uh, the CAA had been passed at that time. Um 
the point about uh, essentially the demo- uh, the diaspora getting involved in those protests and uh, and the kind of polarization we've seen in the last few years amidst the diaspora we see it now with the farmers protest as well um when this government came to power they made a real push for pitching to uh, indians or people of indian origins around the world uh, we've seen the rallies that were uh, taken out by prime minister modi in so many capitals around the world i think there's uh, nearly two dozen by now uh, we've seen his pitch very clearly to ask indians abroad to contribute more uh, i remember when he stood there in houston with uh, president trump he actually said let me introduce you to my family given what we see now the kind of interest that uh, that the diaspora which is essentially not indian citizens uh, living in various parts of the world the kind of interest they're now taking in indian uh, domestic issues and in policies and laws that are passed here uh, do you think the diaspora has become a bit of a double edged sword for foreign policy No I don't think it's a double edged sword because you know for, for me personally I think that a, a lot of the issues that uh, they raise uh, regarding Indian domestic politics uh, are quite valid I think that they like all parts of Indian society in some sense are quite diverse uh, and so you know there are multiple communities that make up the Indian diaspora around the world uh, particularly in the US but also other parts of the world Uh, and so the narrative of hindu nationalism obviously does not appeal to all of them it only appeals to a certain segment of them uh, and uh, and and i think that that's very important to understand i think that before all of these things came up the indian diaspora was a very important tool for indian foreign policy influence it's not that you know prime minister modi through his rallies around the world had suddenly concocted up an instrument that didn't exist previously uh because it did you know it 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 worked in india's favor during the us nuclear deal talks uh it helped in australia you know in 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 pushing uh, a reversal of of the uh, uranium export ban uh and it has been building india's credibility as a an emerging power uh, in different parts of the world particularly in the west uh, through the sort of political participation that they undertake uh, uh you know in in those capitals around the world So it's not that this instrument of foreign policy suddenly uh, began to exist in 2014 or 2015 following the prime minister's rallies but what has happened i think is that they've started to feel uh, a sense of panic about at least some parts of the diaspora has started to feel a sense of panic uh, about the you know the the path that indian politics is taking and as a result some of them are quite understandably wondering about whether they are going to be as willing participants in and ambassadors of indian national power abroad as they have been all of these years past uh, and that i think for me is 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 a is a big concern i think you know indian indian politics will only succeed indian foreign policy will only succeed if we have an inclusive national narrative and national identity and that's as much true abroad as it is here at home all right um to discuss then uh, what is arguably my favorite uh, chapter in the book and that's called tinderbox uh and it's about the region it's interesting you use the term tinderbox because i often say uh, indians tend to see the region they live in as a ring of fire around them you know and that um, that really everywhere they look there's some kind of trouble either internally in those countries or in india's relationship with them so explain to us um how you think this tinderbox 
actually relates uh, to India's quest for global leadership. Some have have uh, made the case in the last few years, particularly that actually India needs to grow out of its neighborhood, that its neighborhood is always going to be a sort of, you know, it's going to pull pull its resources and pull it back uh, from its uh, from its position on the global table. Uh, is it possible for India to actually become an Asian power, to become a global power without the subcontinent? No, I don't think it is actually possible to uh, become a global power without the cooperation of, of the South Asian neighborhood. Um, uh, and, in, you know, in that chapter, the first line that I write is welcome to the world's most fearsome neighborhood. Uh, and in my earlier drafts, I'd actually thought about that for a bit. And, you know, the obvious contender in my mind was the Middle East. Uh, and, uh, and and I thought about whether the Middle East is is, is somewhat more crisis stricken than, than uh, South Asia. It obviously does seem that way on paper. But, you know, there's a certain balance of power that works. Uh, in the Middle East that, you know, to me in South Asia, that kind of trust is not available, in my view, between any pair of countries uh, in, in this region. You wouldn't see a Saudi and UAE sort of combination uh, in, uh, in, in, in South Asia. And that's very, just very to cut in, uh, Just to cut in there, uh, and recently they have been able to sort out their issues on the GCC right. between Qatar the other countries, and we are still not able to hold that SARC summit, but continue. That's right. Absolutely right. And I think that's very unfortunate because of the sort of cultural and historical, uh, you know, commonalities that India has got with each of its neighbors. Uh, And in some sense, I suppose it's it's also unfortunate that India being so very large and and much larger than any other neighbor, uh, that also tends to be a factor in how far India can go. Uh, in winning their trust or making them less skeptical of India's rise. But I think more, you know, more directly uh, to uh, to answer your question, uh, I don't think that India can become a world power unless it sorts out its neighborhood relations. Um, I think that the neighborhood in some sense holds a veto power uh, on on India's uh, global rise and global aspirations, as I, as I write in my book. It's a lot easier for India to build influence in countries like Nicaragua or New Zealand, which are so far away. Uh, than it is to build influence in South Asia because of the several, uh, you know, historical and and current factors that work against India. In in the chapter on the tinderbox, you've made um, a a number of suggestions when it comes to various uh, neighbors like Nepal, like Bhutan, uh, even Pakistan, you have uh, put aside a separate uh, place for it. So give me a sense of where you think the solutions lie in in actually moving towards a, a, a more peaceful neighborhood, if you like, uh, a, a more united neighborhood, and certainly one where connectivity and trade are able to run, even if it's uh, not in all the countries of the neighborhood, but in most of them. I think we need to start looking at a change in mindset. I think India needs to try and be you know, somewhat more philanthropic in its outlook towards the neighbors. And when I say that, you know, I don't just mean uh, trying to save them from floods and earthquakes and so on. And then once that is gone by, we start talking about them behind their back as Chinese stooges. I think that there needs to be a change in the rhetoric as well within Indian politics. We need to start looking at the neighborhood or, or, or our neighbors as equal partners rather than subordinates to India's power aspirations and ambitions. Uh, and we need to speak that way. And, you know, in my book, I write about uh, in that chapter, 
I write about how India can become a good hegemon. And the number one point I make is trying to be more charitable and philanthropic, trying not to, you know, subvert or or subject their internal policy decisions to uh, India's uh, national security interests or India's foreign policy interests. Uh, I criticize, for instance, uh, the friendship treaties with Nepal and Bhutan for, uh, you know, subjecting the arms imports by these countries to uh, Indian whims and fancies. So these sorts of things, I think, are quite unfortunate. I mean, at the end of the day, India being a very large country will anyway be very important to whoever is in power in any of these countries. But for us to make it explicit in our rhetoric and our diplomacy is extremely counterproductive. So that for me is the first uh, step towards a better South Asian neighborhood, particularly for India's own national interest. I think once we start building trust uh, through sustained philanthropic rhetoric, charitable words, uh, charitable action, as as we've been carrying out in, in recent years as well, then we start undertaking the sort of initiatives and policies that that I recommend. For instance, a potential you know common tourist visa regime uh, for South Asian countries, uh, for for foreigners who come from outside of the neighborhood, Americans, Europeans, Australians, and so on. You know, you visit Sri Lanka, you should be able to visit India, or you visit India, you should be able to visit Sri Lanka when you're here on a holiday. Uh, these sorts of regimes, I think, and initiatives, I think, can be undertaken. Uh, once that trust is is built. Does that not sound like a bit of a pipe dream, given uh, the history of the last 30 years in particular? No, I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow for sure. But, you know, what's interesting to me is that uh, when I talk to Bangladeshis or Nepalis or even Sri Lankans and so on, uh, they quite often crib about how India being such a large country, they haven't been able to take part in India's development and growth story as much as they would like. Uh, And to be honest, you know, contrary to what some people might think, a lot of them, even though they counterbalance India with China, they're not particularly happy about deepening economic ties with China. Uh, You know, the general democratic sentiment is that we should not make our countries, uh, in some sense, Chinese stooges. It's important, therefore, to uh, build ties equally with India. And that's why when President Sirisena first ran for power a few years ago, he was running on that plank. Uh, And so there is, I think, a genuine sense, uh, at least from a soft power point of view, India tends to hold the aces that people would like to undertake, you know, participate in India's growth story a lot more. They would like to participate in Indian culture. Even Pakistani artists would like to come and, and, and sing in and dance and act in Bollywood movies. I think all of these sorts of things, India needs to, you know, sort of leverage a lot more uh, in in order to build trust. We should not, I, I honestly don't see why we, uh, you know, allow hockey matches to take place between India and Pakistan, but then cricket matches in some way are, are taboo and they are bad. That, to be honest, just doesn't make any sense to me. And I've asked a lot of people about this. So I think that these sorts of uh, kind of sentimental uh, almost hegemonistic policies that India tends to undertake in the neighborhood. We need to start doing away with them. And over a period of time, if we are able to build on the on the trust, then I think that quite naturally speaking, a lot of these initiatives would start to happen. All right. You mentioned China's role in the region and how uh, not every uh, one of our neighbors is comfortable with it. In fact, I once asked uh, an Indian diplomat what she thought was the answer to dealing with China in the neighborhood. And she said to be the un-China. Uh, 
uh, instead of trying to, you know, outspend and outcompete uh, China. So let's let's come to uh, that question of how to deal with China. You have a country that has um, uh, that has a three thousand kilometer unresolved uh, boundary with us. It is a nuclear power. It is a UN Security Council permanent member. It is a country that we have fought uh, one war not successfully with. Uh, and it is a country whose army is today amassed at our uh, borders um, for the last year. Uh, how do you deal with the various parts of the India-China relationship without actually resolving the border? Is it possible? No, I mean, you know what, I I think for the longest time, I sort of thought that India and China had settled on a pretty decent dynamic in that, you know, they allowed the economic ties to run uh, on a separate track uh, and politics was running parallel to that. And, you know, there was geopolitical uh, competition, but at the same time, there was no economic, uh, uh, you know, there was not at least as much economic animosity between the two countries. But I'm starting to see that that line is uh, is blurring, uh, and uh, you know it's not just uh, it's it's not just because of India's rhetoric on banning Chinese apps and all of that. I think that China also does want to make its economic clout and heft a larger part of its geopolitical ambitions. We've been seeing that with Australia, uh, with uh, with Japan, uh, and now recently also this morning I read a, a report about it happening with New Zealand. So I think China does want to start using its economic clout a lot more uh, in pursuit of its political interests, unlike what it was doing a few years ago. Uh, but at the same time, I think that India's biggest challenge with, with China is, um, uh, you know, the, the power difference. Uh, I think there is obviously a very large difference in, in China's global influence and India's global influence, uh, a difference between China's global presence and India's global presence. Uh, the you know the military uh, uh, is is also in some sense the Chinese military at least if nothing else it holds a psychological edge uh, because of 1962. Uh, but I think the obvious or natural answer to this would be well if we are suffering from a problem of balance of power as I see it then correcting that would be through alliances. Uh, but India does not seem to be keen as yet on on even calling the Quad an alliance, and you know there's a certain allergy, I think, on India's part. Uh, to me, this again brings me back to the basic uh, problem that I have with Indian foreign policy, which is that we are flying blind. We have not decided on our basic tenets. Uh, as I wrote this chapter, for instance, before uh, you know the uh, 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 the recent uh, flare-up happened uh, in the Himalayas. Uh, I honestly was not even sure if the Indian establishment saw China uh, as uh, as as a foe or as a friend, um, and and I think that China also wants to keep India confused that way. And India tends to believe that if we do not end up in a close knit alliance with America and the West, then China, in some sense, would go soft on us, which which in my view is uh, you know quite frankly quite naive and 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 unrealistic. Um, so for me, the first a first step would really, in some sense, be to get over the allergy we've got for alliances and start finding partners uh, in different parts of the world that we can pursue this common interest with, because there are a lot of countries that would like to see India stand up to China as well. Uh, and on the other hand, I think the, the other thing we've got to think about is to try and actually expand ourselves beyond the South Asian neighborhood. 
it's counterintuitive because you know every time we've got a dispute with china it it obviously shows up in south asia along the border in the himalayas and so we tend to get preoccupied in trying to see how we can strengthen our case along the himalayas but in doing so i don't think that we're building bargaining chips in other parts of the world in africa for instance where china has got very deeply entrenched economic interest uh, in the south china sea of course where it has interest in latin america where it has interest all of these regions and parts of the world are also opportunities for india to start competing with china and building bargaining chips along with 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 our other allies and and other countries that see china as a common threat uh, so that we are able to actually in some sense fight back or push back through those bargaining chips rather than being held hostage in the himalayas as we are right now all right um i'm running out of time but i do quickly want to ask you since you did mention your book is uh you know is is called flying blind did you receive pushback from the foreign policy establishment as well um for uh, for naming your book flying blind which does seem like a very very harsh characterization <laughs> of india's foreign policy yeah no i mean you will see that on my book i've got a blurb from ambassador sayed akbaruddin uh, and uh, of course he wrote that blurb before i settled on the title he read the manuscript and then given it based on that uh but uh, you know after i decided on that title i actually went back to him and i said so would you be okay with this uh he just responded with uh, a smile <laughs> uh but you know that i i suppose that's that is diplomatic language i honestly could not decipher it further but you know i often tell people when they ask me about this you know look yes i'm saying that india or indian foreign policy is flying blind but we are still flying and a country as large and consequential as india uh, cannot crawl it can only fly and so my case really is that if india and indian foreign policy is given a more coherent direction uh, in the pursuit of a set of cohesive uh, coherent objectives then we would be able to fly towards global leadership it's quite inevitable i think in some sense uh, you know india being as large and consequential as it is Uh, and the fact that india is a very young population uh, whether it's demographic dividend or demographic disaster a few decades from now india will be a country uh, that will be very important to the rest of the world to the global economy and and to well being everywhere else uh, and that's why the rest of the world also wants india to succeed uh, i read this morning uh, you know one of the former foreign uh, secretaries i think of india uh, writing about how india uh you know that that the world actually wants to see india succeed and i think this is quite right i think that the world also sees that if india is able to build a functional uh you know multicultural democracy uh and is able to educate and empower its very young population then it will obviously have very positive repercussions for economic and political development around the world on the other hand if india ends up with a demographic disaster then india is going to pull the global economy down along with it because we are simply so large and consequential uh, and and so long as we able to find some direction uh, we would be able to get what we want to achieve all right mama zishan thanks so much for speaking with us this is the hindu on books podcast and if you've been listening thanks so much join us again thank you for listening to the hindu on books You can now find the Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. 
write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in 